There was a great Rebbe whose name was the Apter Rav, Rabbi Avram Yeshua Heschel from Apta. He was a student of the Baal Shem Tov, a tremendous tzaddik, and he was known for his copious amounts of eating. His way of serving Hashem was through eating. On Friday afternoon, they would bring a platter this big, full of fish, and he would consume the whole platter. And then two hours later, Friday night, they brought in front of him a platter of meat and chicken. His eating was the way that he served God. It was a very unusual method of service. Does he have a school of thought? Huh? Did he have a school of thought? Yeah. Not exactly the way, the way we might eat a steak. A little, a little bit more refined, a little more holy. There was a man who lived in the region of Apta and had heard a lot about this great tzaddik and he wanted to meet him. But one thing led to another, he never got around to it. Years went by, decades went by. Finally, in the age of 75, he was able to finally make his first trip to Apta. And he was a little old, struggled with the traveling, a lot of effort. Finally, he gets there, he's asking for directions, he's pointed to the Bet Midrash, to the study hall of the Abderav. And he comes in and he's expecting you know, to see something major. And he walks in, all the Hasidim are gathered around, and there he is, the Rebbe, at the table, consuming tremendous amounts of food. And he was thinking to himself, really? Is this what I came for? I heard so much about His Holiness, and there He is fressing. As He's thinking this, the Apterov stops eating, and He starts talking. He says, I want to tell you a story. There was a man in the times of the Second Temple who lived in the regions of Yerushalayim. And he heard so much from his friends and family about the Holy Temple, how we take a trip three times a year, and we go for holidays, and you have to come. And he always wanted to come, never got around to it. Years went by. Finally, at the ripe old age of 75, he made his first trip to the Bet HaMikdash. Tough trip. Traveling was hard. Finally, he makes it to the mountain. He's walking up the mountain. And he's getting closer. People are telling him, that's the temple. This is it. The one you've been hearing so much about. He comes. He's getting closer. And he's getting closer. He starts smelling. Funny smell. Gets closer. It's burning meat and blood, and he says, something's off, there's the barbecue, what's, what's this holy temple? And he comes deeper, and he enters one gate and another, and finally he comes into the, the courtyard of the temple, and that's literally what he sees. Kohanim are running back and forth, a little bloody, they're slaughtering animals, throwing body parts onto the altar, and he thinks to himself, this is the Bet HaMikdash, this is God's temple, a barbecue, a meat, a steak, And Abderav said, it depends. It depends what you're looking for. If you're looking to judge, then you see a beta migdash, that's meat and blood and fat. But if you're looking for Hashem, and you know that this is what Hashem wants, and this is the path to reach Him, then it actually becomes a holy experience. This guy got the message very well in the stand.
I want to talk a little bit about sacrifices because the conversation in tonight's letter, letter 28, even though it's on the same theme as last week, it's a consolation letter to a man who lost a son. And we'll soon talk about who this man was. But the, the conversation revolves around sacrifices. The sacrifices were the core of the temple service. The Rambam, when he describes the temple, incredible divine providence. Tomorrow night is Tisha B'Av. You know, we're, we're mourning the temple. And in these days, many people have the custom to learn the halachot about the temple. And the Rambam, when he opens up the laws of the temple's structure, he says the mitzvah is to make a bet mikdash so that the Jews can bring sacrifices. In other words, sacrifices was the epitome of what the bet mikdash stood for. And it's so fundamental, yet so misunderstood in many ways. And uh, without getting into all the legalities and the technicalities, I want to focus on the mystical, the mystical meaning of the korbanot. Sacrifices, of course, were brought for any number of reasons. You had communal sacrifices, celebratory sacrifices, sacrifices that you brought for thanks. You went through a tough time and a difficult physical experience, you brought a sacrifice. But I guess the, the main reason somebody would find himself in the Beit HaMikdash bringing a korban was because he was trying to atone for something that he had done wrong, either making up for a missed positive or atoning for a negative deed that he had done. And of course, for the reasons that Hashem knows, the body of a sacrifice had to be an animal, a bird, sometimes flower. It was a physical object that you took and slaughtered and brought on the Mizbeach. But of course, as Hashem communicates multiple times through his prophets, I'm not hungry, he says. You know, we don't bring sacrifices because God needs dinner, and uh, this is how much meat he needs to eat for his, you know, his calories for his diet. The true meaning of sacrifice is as the Torah describes it, Adam ki akriv mikem. When a man will bring a sacrifice, it's got to be from you. Sacrifice is not so much about the animal as it is about sacrificing our animal. The physical animal that we bring is a manifestation of that which we're doing. As the Ramban famously writes, that when a person observes everything happening to the sacrifice, he should think, this is what should have happened to me. Instead, in Hashem's mercy, he's having it happen onto the animal kingdom, the vegetable kingdom. But really, it's a reflective experience. It's part of why the Zohar says that when the uh, people used to bring sacrifices, the Leviim used to sing very soulful melodies. It's kind of hard to imagine the scene. You know, the Kohanim slaughtering animals and there's a choir uh, you know, going on in the background. And it was about arousing people to tshuva in the time of the sacrifice. You can be you know, in, in the zone, focused on what you should be focused on. So uh, it's about bringing the inner animal. We all have an animal. The whole first book of the Tanya dedicated to the nefesh bahamit, the animal soul. We have an animal within. And like an animal, a physical animal, the upside of it is that it's very passionate. Because it doesn't have to be limited to intellectual capacities, the cold mind, it's very alive. Your animal soul could actually be more powerful in the service of God than your godly soul. Because if you can arouse the animal to what it's supposed to be doing, it'll go much faster and much stronger than the godly soul by default. But without that, otherwise it's dead weight. It's holding back the human, the godly element of ourselves from reaching its potential. So the idea of a korban is two parts. Slaughter the animal 
and bring some of it on the altar to be consumed in fire. Meaning, some parts of our animal character, there is no other way to deal with it other than it's got to be killed. But other parts then have to go on the altar and become part of the fire of our service of God. They have to contribute to the passion, to the excitement that we have in doing or fulfilling Hashem's will. So you can kind of think about it like you kill the animal, and when you kill the animal, you free the human within us. And now the human can fly in his relationship to God, sometimes even aided by an extra thrust of the animal's passion that's going into it, but the idea is you're freeing the human, the godly side. Then, of course, we have to come back down. Judaism never believes in an up without a down. No such thing as inspiration without practical application. So once you consume yourself in the fire, now you have to find a way to carry it back down and fulfill your divine purpose in engaging with the world. If the synagogue stays in the synagogue and it doesn't come home, our Judaism isn't wholesome. You can't just say, I go here for my spiritual boost and then it stays divorced from everything else. They have to fuse. That's the carbon experience in a nutshell for us. In Kabbalah and the Zohar, it's full of descriptions of the cosmic mirror effect that happens in a parallel universe when we go through this process. And the form that it takes, I'm just, I'm just going to use the, the Kabbalistic form even though it, it's, uh, it could be crude sometimes. But the description is, is, borrows the term of God's chariot. There's a Merkava, so to speak. There's a chariot. The chariot has four holders, four angels that hold the chariot. One is the face of an ox, one is the face of an eagle, one is the face of a lion, one is the face of a human. And then there is what Ezekiel describes as the man on the chair, the supernal man that sits on the chariot. So the chariot is being held by these four animals, and the man is sitting on top. Of course, the metaphor is that the animals are the angels. Like animals, they don't have the option to think objectively. They're very subjective. And the man on the chair is a representative of God's expression of himself in human form. Of course, God, is, in his essence, lies way beyond that. But there's a part of Hashem where he chooses to express himself in the attributes that we call today man, the ten sefirot, etc. So Kabbalah says, every time you offer an animal on the Mizbeach, or today, we don't have the Mizbeach, but we offer the animal within, depending on what type of animal we offered, it's much bigger than what we're doing. When an animal was brought on the Mizbeach, says the Zohar, the entirety of the animal kingdom in the world ascended. You brought a bird on the Mizbeach, the entirety of the bird kingdom ascended. You brought flour, the vegetable kingdom ascended. Salt was the mineral kingdom. Every carbon is like a, there's a micro and the macro. And so to today, we bring an animal. If we bring the bird part of ourselves, because you know, like, there's different parts of our animal. You know, there's, the, there's the ox, the goring part of ourselves, and there's the sheep, you know, the little tamer part of our animal. There's a bird, different types of animals. Different types of animals arouse different types of cosmic mirror effects. And the cosmic mirror effect, the way it's described in the Zohar, is that the animal below ascends to the animal above that matches its position in the chariot, allows the man, the supernal man, to travel, like a chariot you know, helps you get from place to place. And then the man brings, in turn, 
a flow of energy to the animals. In other words, there's an exchange of divine energy, a union, what's called in Kabbalah, yichud, that takes place just because we initiated a process down here that looks very physical, but in Kabbalah it's a huge maisa. And then the energy comes back down, like, like in our service, you have to go to the fire, but then come back down. You create a massive energy upstairs, but then it comes down to inspire your continued service of Hashem. So that's the micro and the macro version of the Korbanot. I'm keeping it really short because it's not the main topic of this letter, but that Hashem one day will explore you know, the, the, the whole gamut of it. Now, there's a general limitation on the capacity of sacrifices. In the Talmud, this is in Jewish law, you can only bring a sacrifice to atone for a sin that you did bishogeg, inadvertently. What? Inadvertently. You weren't aware that it was a sin, or you weren't aware that it was the time when you can't do it. Like, you know, you, like you, knew, what you're, you knew that flipping a light switch on Shabbos is forbidden, but you didn't know it's Shabbos today. That's you know, inadvertent. You forgot. You forgot, exactly. Sacrifices can only atone when it was by mistake. When you do a sin on purpose, violating Hashem's will, actively, knowingly, a sacrifice can't, it can't help over there. That's the, that's the Jewish law. What's the Kabbalah of this? A Jew in general is not naturally prone to sin. You know that? We're actually wired differently than Gentiles. This is what it says in the Zohar. Our souls are different. The lustful desires of a goy can encapsulate forbidden things. Even the lustful desires of a Jew are only for permitted things. It's only if we drag it, if we give it too much permissible things, then he starts craving forbidden things too. But naturally, the way we're like wired, you know, programmed, our lusts are only for, for, for permitted things. The Alter Rebbe mentions this in chapter 8 of way, book 1, talks about this. So a Jew is not naturally prone to sin. If we find ourselves sinning, it's because we've allowed ourselves too much into the permissiveness that we also are now crossing the line into a little forbiddenness. The way the author describes it elsewhere, it's like you're, you're dragging your soul down to a place where it shouldn't be on its own. So if you drag your soul inadvertently, then the korban process will schlep it out, take care of it, fix it up. But if you dragged it there willfully, eh, not, a korban can't do much. And the way the Alter Rebbe describes it in this letter, letter 28, is because closeness that's achieved through sacrifice is considered to be normal, rational, reasonable service of God. When you act in a rational, finite way, you can only elicit rational, finite responses from above. So a rational, finite response is, listen, you did it inadvertently, you forgot, okay, let's take care of it. A little for me, a little for you, let's compromise, boom, take kapara, atoned. But when you do a willful act, so even if you keep serving God in the reasonable, natural ways, the response is not going to be anything beyond reason. Hashem's like, I can't take care of your willful sins with this. You can take care of other things in the bank account, but not this one. Except if we do manifest our service of sacrifice in a way that's beyond reason. If we show in our korban, times of the temple, or today, in our way of approaching 
this uh, correction, that we're really going above and beyond, then we can get above and beyond responses. The, the Baal Shem Tov was once uh, praying on Yom Kippur. And Baal Shem Tov prayed. It was, it was much bigger than one Jew reading from the Machzor. Everybody understood that he's taking care of things on a much greater scale than just the shul in Mezhebush. And his disciples, who were his inner circle, they would stand around him. They would watch his facial expressions throughout Yom Kippur, and they would know, you know what the year is looking like. If he was very serious, it's not going to be a good year, an ominous year. If he was happy, there was good things coming. And they knew, that they learned his, his facial cues. Anyway, one Yom Kippur, that, he, the Bashemta was particularly serious from the first moment on. And nothing that anybody was doing was changing it. Called Nidre, and then the morning service, and then the Musaf service, and then the Mincha service, and even it came to the Ila service. The closing of the thing, they can tell that something is hanging in the balance and. It's no good. If we let Yom Kippur exit without fixing this issue, it's no good. So each of the students increased his own fervor, his own kavanah, his own intentions, his own... But nothing was helping. Towards the middle of the Ni'ila service, there was a, a villager, a village boy, walked in. Looked a little weird. People tried to push him away. The Vashon himself turned around and said, no, bring him in. Brought him into the shul. The chazan is leading the prayer. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, they hear this village boy shout out, Kukuriku! Sound of a chicken. People literally, at this point, they were ready to throw him out. Imagine today what would happen in Chabad. You know, a guy walks in and says, Kak a little do, you know. No patience. Bashantov says, leave him. Leave him. And after a while, he did it again. Made this chicken sound. And the students are watching that as this chicken sound is increasing, so is the Baal Shem Tov's face changing to happiness, to glowing, to fire. They couldn't believe it. Anyway, Yom Kippur closes, and the Baal Shem Tov explained what had happened. He said that our service, our prayer, was all reaching certain gates. But it was limited, because it was limited to our capacity. This village boy came in, and he screamed how could little do from the depths of his heart because he didn't know how to pray. Didn't know how to read. So he figured his chicken makes sounds and it probably connects to God. So he made a sound that connected to God. And that went straight, that cut through all the boundaries. You're using words and letters and intentions. Those go a certain way, but then you can go the express, the express lane. Kukuriku, you know. The Rebbe would tell the story many times also about how a Jew sometimes can take a jump and, and go places where you never think possible. You know, the Talmud talks about a man, Rabbi Elazar ben Durdaya, who was extremely wicked. He looked to do every sin in the book. And uh, towards the end of his life, he had an opportunity to be with a certain zona, a certain harlot, a certain prostitute. And something hit him. Something came over him, like how, how meaningless and empty his entire life is. And he sat down and he looked around at the nature around him. And the Talmud says, he engaged in conversation. The trees, can you help me? No, we can't help you. The mountains, can you achieve forgiveness? No, can't achieve forgiveness. The seas, no, nobody could help him. The entire world couldn't, couldn't save him from what he was going to face in his eternal judgment. But they all said to him, only you can save yourself. 
we can't help you, you can help yourself. Talmud says he put his head between his knees and he cried until he passed. And when he cried, and when he passed away, a voice came out from heaven, a bat kol said, Rabbi, called him Rabbi, Elazar ben Durdaya is welcome to the life of the world to come. And Rabbi, Rabbi Noah said, Yesh Here you have an example of a man who can acquire his world in one moment. And Hasidus explained that's what happened. He reached such a part of, of his soul that was so at his core and so beyond all types of reason that he meet with, with this tshuva at the end of his life, he transcended and took care of everything. So sometimes we too, maybe we don't expire, but we show Hashem, we, we take a leap that goes above and beyond reason that can achieve things, responses above and beyond reason. Now, in the actual temple, in the sacrifice world, there was no mirror to this. There was no sacrifice in the Bet HaMikdash which operated in this beyond transcendent way. Why? Because the Bet HaMikdash is the place of ultimate godly balance and perfection. You know, we once talked about this, how a Kohen who had a physical defect couldn't serve in the temple. Not because something wrong with him, but because the Bet HaMikdash is a place of balance, not compensation. People with physical defects, they make up for what they're lacking in a crazy way, in other ways. It's, it's, that's their life. Their life is a life of compensation. They can do incredible things. But the Bet HaMikdash is ideal, the ideal balanced model. There's no room for anything outside of perfection. So no sacrifice could achieve that. But there was a Jewish ritual that resembled this concept. That was the Paraduma. Paraduma is the red heifer. It's the one you can call it a sacrifice. You know, the Torah calls it a chatat. It calls it a, a sin offering, even though it's not really. But it was a ritual they would perform outside of the Bet HaMikdash. They'd go way out to this mountain, and they would slaughter the red heifer, and they would put it on the, on the altar, and they would throw a red string into it, and a hyssop, a whole service. And then with the ash, they put it into the water, and then the water could be sprinkled on somebody who had become ritually impure from a corpse. Chum'at met. It was very common in those days, but Kabbalistically it represents getting in touch with death. Understand? We're alive. To be in touch with death means to sink to the lowest of the lowest places spiritually. And the Parah Duma was able to reach that. Why? Because it was done outside. In the temple, you're limited to the box. But once you go out, you can achieve things by compensation, by this method of going totally above and beyond the reasonable way of serving Hashem, a totally unreasonable way of serving Hashem, and get responses that match to that input to atone even for tumat met, spiritual death. So the paraduma would atone for the corpse, the death, spiritual death, which the Alter Rebbe says in this letter corresponds to willful sins. Other korbanot could only achieve could achieve atonement for the inadvertent sins. The paraduma would, could, if done with the right intent, and a matching transcendent uh, resolution was taken by the person, Hashem would respond in kind. The Alter Rebbe says, by the way, that the concept is hinted in, uh, in the Torah, actually. Because when you take the ashes of the paraduma and you put it into the water, it's called kiddush. I know we make kiddush on Friday nights, but it was called kiddush, sanctifying the, the sprinkling waters. And kiddush in, in Zoharic language, Kabbalistic language, kodesh means transcendent holiness. Transcendent holiness. 
holiness that's, that's, that's beyond, above and beyond reason. So there you see in, in the Paraduma how it reached this level of Kodesh. It would reach what's called in Kabbalah Keter, the world of the crown. Says the Alter Rebbe, all this is in our individual lives. Sometimes we operate on a reasonable level. Sometimes we operate on a beyond reason level. Sometimes we're bringing regular sacrifices. Sometimes we're bringing Paraadumas in our own life and getting those divine responses. But then you have some people who, they live para aduma. That's their life. Every ounce of every breath that they take, everything that they do, is godliness. Typically we categorize that as tzaddikim. People that are inspired Jews, they're naturally godly. They breathe Hashem. And the Magad of Mizrich, the author of his teacher, it says about him, he didn't move his hand unless it was corresponding to the divine will. Everything he did corresponded to he was mirroring what was happening above. He literally embodied godliness. Since their entire life is that way, they have access to beyond the system. Because their whole life is misirat nefesh, essentially it's giving themselves up to God completely. They can make miracles. They can break nature because of that. Because their life is beyond reason, they can achieve things that are beyond reason. And of course, tzaddikim are communal people. They don't live for themselves. They live for others. And so they're always looking to bring access to this transcendental godliness to everyone around them. It says the Alter Rebbe like this. That's all during our lifetime. Some people live this way. Some people live that way. At the culmination of our life, just like we can create moments of sacrifice, the, the final moments of every person's life, no matter how you lived, are very, very spiritually charged. The, the, the language of Kabbalah is everything that a person did in this world and everything he accomplished in the higher realms have an ascent and a descent. They achieve incredible stuff up there and they also bring down incredible flow of energy to this world at the moment that they pass for their families, for their communities, people that they touch, etc. The greater you, your, your communal value is, the broader your effect. For an individual, you have an individual effect. For a head of a family, a bigger effect. Head of a community, a bigger effect. A tzaddik of a generation, even a bigger effect. Affects everybody. But because most people live our lives typically on the reasonable level, the effect that we achieve at the day in the moment of our passing, is also a reasonable effect. The tzaddik who embodied his entire life, a life of para a life of incredible intensity in the service of Hashem, above and beyond all limitations, in the moment of his passing, not only does he affect everybody because he's a communal person, he affects them in a way that transcends any limitation. It's a time of incredible blessing. That's why Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai, the day he passed away on Nagba Omer, in the Zohar, it's recorded that it was Incredible blessings were brought down that day. Secrets of the Torah were revealed because his entire service of God was ascending that day and affecting everybody. Matter of fact, in a, in a discourse that the Alter Rebbe delivered a few weeks after writing this letter, I'll also give you the historical context, the Alter Rebbe said, when a tzaddik passes with him, he, forget, he achieves forgiveness for the people in his generation's willful sins. Like we create para aduma for ourselves, the tzaddik in the moment of his passing takes with him all of the 
the purposeful, knowing acts of violation of Hashem's will that his, that his generation committed. And with this thesis, the Alter Rebbe explains an interesting Gemara. The Gemara says that if you look in the Torah, the story of the, the commandment of the red heifer is juxtaposed to Miriam's death. It doesn't seem to follow chronological order, just how it is. Para Aduma, Miriam's death. Gemara says, Lama Nismecha, Parshat Para, the Parshat Miriam. Why is the portion of the red heifer next to the portion of Miriam? To tell you, just like the Para Aduma atoned, so too does the death of Tzadikim atone for the generation. So all the commentaries wonder, hold on, the, the red heifer is not even considered legally a sacrifice. It was done outside the temple, a different kind of a thing. If you want to bring out that death of tzaddikim atones for the generation, put it in the book of Vayikra, next to the portion about the sin offering. Sin offering atones for your sins, and then right there, Miriam will pass away, and you'll say, oh, tzaddikim atones, like a sin offering atones. Says the Altair, but that's exactly the point. It, the tzaddik's death atones not like a regular sin offering. A regular sacrifice atones in a reasonable way. The tzaddik atones like a paraduma atones. Just like a paraduma can reach above and beyond all limitation, and elicit from Hashem transcendental revelations in the same way that's how Tzadikim's death atones. In that way, in that special, unique way. In the way of Lamala Mala, higher than Hishtal Shalut, higher than the natural order of things. Yes, it does. Not in this letter it does, but it does say that in Hasidic commentary on the letter that it happens again every yard site. Because every yard site, what happens is they take a look at the tzaddik and they say, how did he affect people living in this world during that year? And whatever deeds were done in the merit of the tzaddik now accumulate to his bank account too. And so his soul has another ascension. And when a tzaddik's soul ascends, it also descends and achieves the same thing for people, for people uh, in, in this world. So now let's come to the historical context of the letter. The Alter Rebbe had a great friend, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Barditchev, known as the great defender of Israel. He loved Jews. They were both students of the Maggit. Rabbi Levi Yitzchak was five years older than the Alter Rebbe. There was a plan for the Alter Rebbe's grandson to marry the Barditchever's granddaughter. This was called, it, it, the wedding took place. It was called the Great Wedding, or the Zhlobin Echasana. It took place in the city of Zlobin. And when these two giants met, it was, uh, incredible stories happened. They can go on this. Uh, we could do an hour of the storytelling of the stuff that went down there. Incredible, incredible stories. But the wedding was delayed because the father of the chassan, I believe it's like Redditch's son, did I say Alter Rebbe's grandson to his granddaughter? It was the opposite. Alter Rebbe's granddaughter to his grandson. But the father of the groom, Rabbi Meir, who was the son of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak, was very sick. And they were pushing the wedding, pushing the wedding, and finally he passed away. A young man. 1805. Five days after Simchat Torah. He passed away. Young man. And the Yitzhak was broken. Devastated. And the Alter Rebbe wrote this letter to console him. This essay, bringing out the difference between regular sacrifices and para aduma, regular people and tzaddikim, and how tzaddikim, when they pass, they're achieving atonement and level of para aduma, he tells the Rebbe, you should know, you had an incredible son. Your son fits this bill. He was just like Miriam. 
He was just like those tzaddikim who lived out their lives completely in alignment with Hashem's will in a greater way than intellect demands. And so while he did pass, and it was a tremendous and tragic loss, you should know that with his passing came a tremendous, tremendous effect for your family, for the community, and for the entire Jewish world. The death of tzaddikim atones like para aduma atones. And that's the letter. Tomorrow night is Tisha B'Av. Ties right in. There's another Gemara which says the death of tzaddikim is as terrible as the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. Another version of the text that says it's even worse. When a tzaddik passes away, the effect on the Jewish people of his time are even worse than what the effect was of the temple's destruction. The Rebbe quoted this line on his, on his father-in-law's first yard site when he took over the leadership officially in, in 1951. In his first mimer, in Basi Legani, he quoted this line. That we don't have the sacrifices, we don't have the temple, but we do have death of tzaddikim. And he said it, but then he gave it a positive spin. A little bit in that talk, and he expounded on it in later years. I mentioned before, the destruction of the temple. In halacha, destruction is only if you're going to rebuild. Real destruction in Jewish law has to have a rebuilding following it. So even though it's difficult in the moment, but in the same way we know that a churban is meant to bring the rebuilding of the better temple and the bigger temple. If we see a tzaddik passing away, we have to know that it's bringing big, bigger and greater things. And it's on us to take the lessons of his life, to live out his legacy, and to make that part of our lives so we can bring those blessings into our lives. And the same is true of any tzaddik that we know. In their yard site, or in general, if we become their students, and we learn about it, and it becomes part of the way we think, and part of the way we live, and we get a little bit of the tzaddik energy in us, and we can achieve blessings above and beyond all of our limitations for good things, for nachas, for panasa, for health, and for everything that a Jew should need. L'chaim. L'chaim.